Father, it is with an amazing and eternal plan of mercy and grace founded and grounded and sourced out of your eternal love that you, by your own sovereign choice, your own sovereign design, have set on us and brought us into even the very love that you have for your son by putting us in him and bringing us into union with him and know Christ, you making this possible by taking on flesh and coming to this earth, living as a man, dying as a substitute for man, rising from the dead, sending the spirit and bringing us to experience your life. And it is an amazing love and one that is demonstrated in our lives, not only in the songs that we sing, but in the lives that we live, as we live for you in this world. And we demonstrate our love for you when we follow you, when we obey you, when we trust you. And so we pray that you would prove that love as you enable us and you work in us to demonstrate these things in our life and so reflect your glory, so be a light to this dark world. And we ask you to do these things for us and encourage us in them in this time that we have together. Thank you for grace, thank you for mercy, thank you for your spirit, thank you for your word. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we come now to our final message, believe it or not, uh, over the church of Thyatira. Interestingly, the church of Thyatira is the, one of the most insignificant of all of the cities, of uh, all of the churches that Christ is to, uh, addressing in his message to the seven churches, and yet it is the longest letter, and that's been proven true for us, and we've taken the longest time to go through it, but... There is so much there and so much yet, even believe it or not, that we're not sane. But we come now to the end of his message to this church, the church at Thyatira. And the end of his message to the church at Thyatira, as it is to all of the other churches, is a message of hope. It is a message of hope. It is a message of hope because that is what we need as God's people is hope. We all need hope. We need it especially as God's people, but we need it merely as human beings. But as the redeemed, it is the essence of our faith. It is the very foundation of our courage. It is the light of our endurance, the hope that we have in Christ. When someone loses hope, there is a deep sense of despair. There's a deep sense of darkness. There's a, a wandering, a restlessness, a chaos, an unsettledness within the soul. Proverbs 13, 12 says it and says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But as, the leave, as believers, we have a certain hope of faith in Christ. It's sealed and secured for us in the resurrection. In the resurrection and in the ascension of Christ where he now is at the right hand of the Father for us, interceding for us. In fact, Paul puts it this way in familiar words in Romans 8.24 that we have been saved in hope. In hope. It's what we wait for. It's what we look for. It's of the essence of faith that we bring into our present experience what we have not yet experienced in its fullness and that is every promise that is yes and amen in Christ every promise that is guaranteed to us but that is not yet ours in the fullness of what we experience in this world 
And so we've been saved in hope. And so Christ encourages us in that hope. He encourages us in the promises. He encourages us in the future of all of those who belong to him so that we can have hope. And that hope can encourage us unto faithfulness. And so that's what we come to here in the message of Thyatira. We come now to his promise of hope, the reward for our faithfulness. It is the covenant promise for those who endure, for those who have trusted in Christ, for those who are in true union with Christ, who have the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Father, the spirit of God indwelling in them. It is hope. So let's read our passage this morning when we'll just read verse 26 through 29 and then we'll consider the hope that we have in Christ. Beginning in verse 26. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ is, of course, speaking this to those he's already recognized as being faithful in the mid, amidst the pressures to conform to the culture around them, pressures to conform to the guilds, as we said, those institutions that would have been a means of livelihood, both culturally and economically for many within the church, but would have meant compromising with idolatry, would have meant compromising with sin. And many in the church or some in the church had done that, but there were not all of them. And those who had remained faithful, Christ gives a word of encouragement. He gives a word of encouragement. And he tells of the reward. He tells of the end of that faithfulness. And in verse 26, he identifies and answers this question. Who gets the reward? Who experiences the promise of the covenant? And it is in that familiar term, he says, the one who overcomes the one who overcomes, and he defines that person, and he who keeps my deeds until the end. Who is the reward for? The one who stays faithful amid the temptations of the flesh, the lures of the lust of the world, the threats of the devil and his minions in this world, the one who doesn't cave and ultimately stays faithful to Christ, the one who is willing even to give his life to be faithful to Christ to the end. These familiar words, and they overcame because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. That is the overcomer. That is the one who receives the reward. That is the one who has put his hope in something beyond the immediate convenience of compromise into that larger and certain hope of what God has promised to those who know him. To those who knew Christ. And I want to note here just this observation that the overcomer is not a special class of Christian. He's not, the overcomer isn't a super Christian. It isn't the especially spiritual Christian. It isn't like sometimes, and you, this is what unbelievers will say or those in the church, well, I want to be a Christian, but not like that Christian who's someone who's totally sold out for their faith in Christ. No, the overcomer is someone who is actually saved. It is the actual Christian, the one who is truly a Christian indeed. There's nothing unique or special about the overcomer in the sense that sets them apart from other Christians. They are, in fact, the one who is a Christian, who does endure, who does stay faithful to the end. 
That is a common reminder in Scripture that faithfulness is required. There's many places you could go. Let me read you one. He says, He has reconciled you in His body. He will present you before Him holy and blameless, beyond reproach. If you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. The overcomer is a Christian. The overcomer is the one who belongs to Christ. The overcomer is the one who is truly regenerate, who is truly indwelled by the Spirit of God, who has a faith that will endure to the end. As a matter of fact, let me just illustrate this to you in briefly. In John's first letter, the first epistle of John, so after his major gospel in the end, his first letter, He's writing to encourage Christians who are being tricked, who are being fooled, some who are being misled into false teaching, some who, not unlike the error of Jezebel, were compromising with the world or being lured into those who claim to have a, a special knowledge of God and were saying that their lives did not affect the security of their salvation. And this was confusing to those to whom John is writing. And so he's writing to these group of believers to instruct them on who it is, in fact, that knows God, who, in fact, it is that has truly experienced regeneration and is born again. And one of the ways that he identifies them is as overcomers. He says in verses 13 and 14, verses you're familiar with, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men, listen, because you have overcome the evil one. He says it again in verse 14. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You have overcome. In the midst of false teaching, these are those who show themselves to truly be of God because they have not caved. Chapter 4, verse 4. You are from God. That is to say then, you are the product of God's saving work. You are the evidence of the fruit of God's salvation in Christ. You are the evidence of the Spirit of God dwelling in you. How? Verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Who? The spirit of Antichrist. Why? Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He says the same thing in chapter 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And believers are those who have received that testimony, who have believed in the testimony of God about His Son, who have placed their faith in the Son, and who demonstrate the reality of that faith by following the Son. It is a Christian. The overcomer is a Christian who does not love this world even unto death, who does not fall ultimately to the lust of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life to those things that are passing away, but endures. 
And so what marks the overcomer? What marks the Christian? What marks the one who has truly been born of God? What marks the one who does not follow the teaching of Jezebel, the teaching of Antichrist, does not cave under the threats of the evil one? What marks them? It is really something very simple. I mentioned it last week. It is faithfulness, obedience, repentance. That's what marks a Christian. That's what marks the one that belongs to Christ. That's what marks the one who overcomes. It is an inner disposition of love motivated obedience. Love motivated obedience. It's being faithful to Christ. Let me just read one passage. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So he says it is to this one, to he who overcomes, who he who manifests the reality of Christ's life in them, he who shows himself to be truly a Christian by living for Christ, by trusting him and obeying him, by being one who does not cave to this world. And this is not an easy task, however. It's not an easy task. The call to faith in Christ is a call to repentance, is an exchange of our life for his life. And it requires various degrees of suffering, various degrees of loss. And you know, but there's something even deeper than that that it requires and it manifests it. That's great and, and, and God's people have to experience that to various degrees throughout the, the history of the church. But it requires a, a battle, it requires evidence of a battle that's deeper than that, and it is this, a battle with our own sin and flesh, a battle that pursues righteousness, a battle that daily seeks to walk with Christ. That's where the real battle is. It's not in one heroic moment of faith. It's not in one heroic act of laying down your life. It is the daily act of waking and living for Christ and pursuing him. And it's that is the one who overcomes. That's the one who does not love his life unto death because he's exchanged his life. That's the one who does not fear the devil because they know they belong to the one who has defeated the devil. One said this, the Christian life does not consist in one victory over sin. It consists in a lifelong fidelity which defies every assault of sin. The Christian life is not a battle, it is a campaign. That's the one who overcomes. That's the one who overcomes. Now that doesn't mean in that campaign that there aren't losses along the way. There isn't stumbling. You don't get injured in the battle. You don't run the wrong direction sometimes. But the one who overcomes is the one who comes back. The one who turns back to Christ. The one who repents towards Christ. The one who rests in his grace. And the one who washes the blood off and starts fighting again. That's the overcomer. That's the overcomer. It's summed up simply in these words, he who keeps my deeds until the end. What are all these deeds? He's already mentioned them earlier. The one, he says to the church at Thyatira, who has love 
for the brethren, who has faith in Christ, who has a heart of service and ministry to others, who has perseverance in the truth, and who increases in their godliness throughout life, whose deeds are greater than at first. That's the one who overcomes. That's the one who keeps his deeds until the end. Does that match you, mark you? Are you an overcomer? Are you an overcomer? That's the one who the promise is for. And if you are an overcomer, and if you are the one who shows and manifests the life of Christ in you, then there is a promise that makes everything worth it. There is no sacrifice that can be given that's greater than the reward that's gonna come to those who know him. And what is it here? He says this. He gives two, actually. The first is here in verse 26 and 27. I will give to him authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. This is astounding. This is breathtaking. These are part of those promises that will be to all of the promises that are given to Christians that we can understand, we can consider, we can pray, we can meditate, but we can't fully comprehend how magnificent this promise actually is. Let's just consider it for a moment. The first promise then is that we will rule over the nations in the kingdom of Christ. We will rule with Christ. Now he uses an interesting term here. I'll just note at first, you might have again a little note in your Bible sometimes if you have a reference Bible or whatever. He says, I will rule them with a rod of iron. That word rule is actually an interesting word that's usually translated as shepherd, poimeo. Usually it's translated as shepherd and it has the idea of guiding and caring for, of leading. In fact, he uses that term in that way in chapter 7 in the same form of the word actually. He says, I said to him, my Lord, you know who these are, this great multitude that is before the throne. And he said, who are these? He said, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the lamb. They are the ones who will be shepherded and led by Christ. They are the ones who will know his care. These are the ones who will know his love for them. He says in verse 17, for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of the water of life and will wipe every tear, tear of their eyes. That is the shepherding care. That is the idea of that term of Christ towards his people, of those who have overcome, those who have laid down their life. But he uses the word two other times in Revelation, in the only other two other times, to speak of Christ's rule over rebellious nations, the rule that brings about their destruction. Again, same term, but listen to how it's used in some other context. In verse 5 of chapter 12, speaking here of recounting of Christ coming to the nation of Israel, Satan trying to destroy him but failing, but it says this, and she, that would be Israel, gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And there this rule is attached again to the rod of iron. One other time it's used in Revelation 19, 15, and he says this, speaking of the return of Christ. 
Out of his mouth came a sharp sword, so that, it may, that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of so the fierce wrath of the Almighty God. So the idea here of rule is not so much shepherding and leading and guiding with gentleness. It is the idea of an authority over the nations that will be demonstrated in judgment. In judgment. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of potter are broken to pieces. And it's a devastating judgment. He says they shall be shattered. The term here actually speaks of not just broken as in cracked, but shattered into many pieces. We have a glass table that's been there for years out on our deck. And I went to, a few months ago to put an umbrella in the middle, a new umbrella that Trish brought. And uh, I moved the table and it, put, it tweaked the glass and it shattered. It went into a thousand people's pieces. I was out there for probably half an hour or more with a shop vac, you know, vacuuming up all these pieces of glass. It was amazing. That's the idea here. It's not merely broken, but it is shattered into a million pieces that he will utterly destroy them, that we will be a part of that destruction. We will be a part of that destruction. It is a rule, he says here, that is with a rod of iron. This is a hard wood staff capped with an iron tip that was for the purpose of inflicting pain for discipline or punishment. And that is the idea here. Now, interestingly, this quote is taken from Psalm chapter 2. You might remember that we mentioned this when we noted the introduction of Christ at the beginning of the letter, that his feet were like burnished bronze, that he is a king who destroys, that he is the son of God, that he is the one who is identified as the promised Messiah who would execute this rule. And this is taken from Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. So in order to get this, just to interject the idea here, let's just briefly look at Psalm chapter 2. And note the context of it. Psalm chapter 2, of course, is the second psalm in the Psalter as we have it in the canon. And it is set there in the early part of the psalms to set one of the major themes that will run throughout the psalms. That is namely the rule of God through his appointed one. The rule of God through his appointed one. And Psalm 2 fits the role of making that clear. It celebrates the establishment of God's covenant with David and the rule of the Davidic king over his people. It, it establishes God's ruler as the ruler of the nations. It's very likely that this was, in fact, read or sung upon the anointing of a Davidic king on the throne in Judah. Those who followed after David with whom the promise was made. It acknowledged that the king who ruled over God's people was the king that God established and he would accomplish his purposes. Psalm 89, 20, just let me read it. I have found David, my servant, speaking of this covenant with my holy oil. I have anointed him. And that is also the language, of course, of which we get Christ, the anointed one. Here it's being used of the Davidic king. And he says in verse 21, with whom my hand will be established, my arm will be strengthened. And his hand and his arm speaks of God's sovereignty. It speaks of his rule. It speaks of the accomplishment of his purposes through the Davidic king. Through the Davidic king, and that is what Psalm 
to celebrate. Let's just briefly consider it. In verses 1 through 3, he identifies how this rule of God stands against the rebellion of the people. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing, an empty, a worthless plan? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we will not submit to any rule but our own. We will not submit to any God over us, certainly not the God of Israel. It is a message of rebellion. It marks the hostility of the nations against God's anointed king and God's covenant nation. And the emphasis here is primarily this, is God's covenant nation. That means then that the hostility of the nations against the king of Israel and against Israel is hostility against God. It's not unlike what Jesus said, if the, the world hates me, they're going to hate you. If the world, if they listen to my, if they receive you, they receive me. If they receive me, they receive my father. In other words, it's a stream. God's representatives to receive or reject God's representative is to receive or reject God himself. And so this rebellion against God's anointed is rebellion against God. That means that as we understand this language throughout the Old Testament, that we understand God's enemies or Israel's enemies are God's enemies. Their hatred towards Israel is in reality a hatred against God's rule. That is what's behind the imprecatory Psalms. It is not a personal vengeance that the psalmist is laying out against his own personal enemies, though they are that. It is an expression of the vengeance of God against those who resist his rule and reject his rule. And so that is what's being identified even here. In verses 4 through 5, however, God regards these threats as laughable. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them and he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. He regards, in the language of Isaiah chapter 40, the nations as less than nothing. They are meaningless. And so it is their rebellion against his king and against his rule. And then in 6 through 9, he says that I've already established my king. He's not saying what he's going to do. He's not saying what he might do. He's not saying what he's going to try to do. He's saying what he has already done according to his purpose, that he has established his king. So in verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. So God answers the threats of the nations by declaring that despite their proud boasting, he will destroy all who oppose him and it will be as easy as he does anything else. It will be as easy to him, easier than creating the universe. God is absolutely sovereign and nothing expends his energy more than in one thing than another. Creating a universe or destroying the nations, it is the same to him. He is omnipotent. 
And he identifies him here. He says, well, who's the one he's installed? He says, I said to me, you are my son. Now, initially, this language would have been associated with the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 14, where David said, or God says this to David in verse 14, I will be a father to him, speaking of his descendants, and he will be a son to me. I will be a father to him, And he will be a son to me. He will stand in a unique relationship to me. Again, Psalm 89, which is a psalm celebrating in an extensive form this covenant. He says in verse 26, I shall, well, in verse 24, speaking of the Davidic king, my faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. In him, my name is, is horn, his, his horn will be exalted. That is his strength, his might, his power. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. His firstborn there, speaking of the preeminent one. The preeminent one among all of the kings of the earth. That is the initial language here of the Davidic king. And he will exercise authority by shattering all those who oppose him. And then verses 10 through 12, he summons all the nations to act wisely considering this is the case. Considering this is the situation that God's king will rule, that he will break and shatter all rebellion against him. He then gives an exhortation to wisdom. He says, verse 10, Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And so what is the right response to this king? It is to worship him. It is to worship him. God is not the God of Israel only, but also of the Gentiles. He is the Savior also of the Gentiles. He is the ruler of the Gentiles, but he is uniquely the ruler over Israel as his redeemed and covenant nation, as the redeemer of Israel, and it is through Israel that he exercises his dominion. And it is to Israel that those who fear God were to submit And acknowledge that the God of Israel is the only one and true God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the only one to receive the worship of man. And anyone who fails to do that will be destroyed. Now they understood this initially in the sense of God's rule through the Davidic king. But this was a reality that was never fully realized as were any of the promises in the Old Testament. They had a sense of, being, of anticipation. They knew that this would only be fulfilled in the one that God would promise. And that is why throughout the promise, they are waiting for David's son. David's son to rule over the nation. The time when Israel will be restored and David will rule over them. That is the one that was promised to David who would come as a descendant of David. In other words, it was messianic. It was messianic. And they understood the language here. Eventually, this became clearer and clearer, even in the writings of the Jews, that this was at a clear messianic anticipation. That the only one who would fulfill this is the one who was the promised one, the Messiah. And this was hinted at 
in other places. Let me just mention one to you, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter, that is your your emblem of rule and of power, of kingship from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 4 or verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations and he will fill them with corpses. He will shatter them shatter the chief men over a broad country. They understood that this was something in reference to the Messiah and his rule. As a matter of fact, one captured this well. And let me just, I thought it was a good summary. And we're going to connect this to Psalm Revelation. During the monarchical period, that is during the period of the kings, the rule of the kings that was established first with Saul, David, Solomon, and so forth. Then the divided kingdom. He says this, during the monarchical period, Psalm 2 was almost certainly used as a hymn celebrating, well, that should be the rise of the the new Davidic king. But due to the sin of God's people, as well as David's descendants, the last king to sit on the throne in Jerusalem was Zedekiah, whose reign ended with the Babylonian defeat of that city in 586 B.C., At that point, the faithful came to understand Psalm 2's latent eschatological sense as they started to look forward to a future descendant of David who would be Messiah. And so this was said of the Davidic king, but they realized that there was no Davidic king who fulfilled this. It was the promised son of David, the promised son of David. And this is exactly how it was understood at the very beginning of the establishment of the church. And they knew... That this promise was not only referring to Christ, but it had reference to promise as a promise to his people as well. Let me just mention to you a couple of places. In the book of Acts, after the disciples were suffered for the name of Christ, they said this in a statement of their courage and in a statement of their confidence of the success of the kingdom of God and of the gospel. They said... That God said through the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your father, our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And there he applies it to all of the Gentile and Jewish opposition to Christ. And yet he prevailed. Prevailed in the resurrection, put to death and crucified before men, yet risen from the dead and exalted as the Son of God and the promised Messiah before his people, the one who had all power. In Acts 13, 13, we won't mention it again. There it is used in reference to the divine nature of Christ. Here's the point. Here's the point in the encouragement. The domain of darkness seems so strong And the spirit in the kingdom of Antichrist is on the rise and the cost of following Christ comes with a price for many people, for us, who knows what that will mean ultimately. It's gonna come with a cost and the price of battling our own sin, the price of spiritual battle in the world, the price of suffering in whatever way God's ordains that may include the possibility of death is very real. However, here's the promise. We who belong to Christ know that the kingdom of darkness has already been destroyed at the cross. That's Colossians 2. They've already been destroyed and it will fall at the return of Christ and you, Christian, will reign forever with Christ. In his kingdom. 
This is an incredible promise. Imagine how contrary to the the expectation of the world or the perception of the world. Imagine what it would be to this little church at Thyatira who receives this promise against the whole might of imperial Rome and all of that ostentatious power and all the emblems of their power that could have crushed them as a people so easily. And yet the word of the risen Christ to them is that you will have authority over them. They are not the true power. They will fall and they will crumble before your feet. Those who bring you to account now and have supposedly the power over life and death, although it's not really they who have this power, will serve you, will crumble before you. You, little church in Thyatira, have this power. You, the persecuted church throughout the history of the ages, has this authority over the nations. And you will realize it in the end. You will realize it in the end. That's the promise. It's not the Roman Empire who has power. It's not the United States government that has power. It's not any other government that has power. And the victory is not them. Before God and before the risen Christ, the power of all the nations together is laughable. And that's what he's reminding us of. It's a certain promise. Oh, we take great delight in little victories along the way. We take great delight in mercies that come through government and laws, protection of righteous things. We mentioned Roe versus Wade. Who knows what will come of that? We've yet to see the full consequences. We know that this is not going to be heaven on earth yet. That whatever victories we can celebrate in the meantime and we rejoice in them and we fight for them and we should and that is the right thing to do because we're a light in this world, that's not the ultimate victory. And whatever persecution comes and whatever arrogance is paraded before our eyes, whatever mockery of God that seems to exercise power over God's people, the promise is they will be destroyed and God will, as he said to the church at Rome, Satan will be crushed under your feet. Under your feet. This is amazing. This is amazing. Now this fits then into really a much larger picture. A much larger picture that I want to just very briefly mention. And that larger picture is this. The way that we as Christians fit into God's purpose for all of creation and for redemption So I want to just point your attention to one other text very briefly. And that's in Hebrews chapter 2. And I want to put this in an even larger picture. An even larger picture of what it means to belong to Christ. What it means to belong to Christ. In verses 5 through 8 he says this. He says, he did not subject to angels the world to come. What is the world to come? It is just that. It is the world that God has ordained for his people, the world that is to come, the world that is not here yet, the world that we anticipate, the glorious world that Paul anticipated when he says when we're there, then it will no longer be by hope, it'll be by sight. It's the world of promise. He said, he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning the things which we are speaking 
But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Who is he talking about there? He's talking about man. He's talking about man. He's talking about humanity. He's talking about the promise that was given to man in Genesis chapter 1 through 2. He's quoting here from Psalm 8. And he's recounting God's original purpose for man. What was it? That, God, that man would rule over creation. That man would have dominion under God's authority and God's dominion over all of the earth. And they would rule it for God's glory. And they would function under God's authority. And they would flourish and they would be blessed. That was the purpose. God's saying you've put all things in subjection under his feet. That was the intention. That was, is what God has done. For man, it is the very essence of bearing God's image and the mandate to extend the glory of that image throughout the entirety of the created world. But because of sin and because of the fall, this purpose was corrupted and it's a corruption that came about by the sin of man influenced by the fallen angel Satan, the devil, the serpent of old and why this basic relationship and purpose of God for man remains to have dominion, while the image of God is still in man, though distorted and blurred, this still remained as God's original purpose, what he established in the creation of man. But now man being corrupted, blinded by sin, enslaved to sin, ruled by the kingdom of darkness, living as rebels to be judged, rather than being blessed, know the hardship that came from the curse. Never realize this. Even the greatest of kings, King David, of the nation of Israel, of God's covenant people, did not realize this because of sin. Because of sin. As a matter of fact, one made a comment. If we began making a list of those things in this world, evidently not under man's control, it quickly becomes quite large. There's many things that aren't under our control. We're subject to storms and natural evil and those things that take the life of man. We're subject to all kinds of effects of the curse. But look at verse 9. But we do see him... We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all from one Implicate Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given to me. In short, it is this, though there's so much there, that what man failed to realize, it was always God's purpose to bring about the realization of that 
responsibility of man, that privilege of man to bring the realization of that out in an even greater way in the Son who would take on flesh, who would remove the curse, who would bear the consequences for man's sin and be the sole and only one who receives the glory for that accomplishment and then reflects that glory through his people who are given to him by the Father who will share in his inheritance, who will share in his victory, who will share in his glory as Messiah, not as the one, the singular glory, but reflected glory of the Messiah who has accomplished salvation for us. God fulfilled his purposes for man by becoming a man. God destroyed the rebellion of the domain of darkness by bearing his justice. God accomplished the fellowship, rule, and glory that he intended for man by bringing it about in his son. It fits into a larger picture. This is God's eternal purpose that he and he alone would receive glory in the Son and that what he created man for, which was in fact an anticipation of the incarnation and what he would give to the Son through his suffering and death who is now crowned with glory and that is a new heavens and a new earth over which we will reign with him. And so look at what he says. And part of that reign is going to be the destruction of his enemies. Look at what he says in verse 27. And he shall rule them, and the he there, he shall rule them, is now transferred over to the overcomer, although it's accomplished in Christ. He is the one who has overcome. We'll get there in chapter 5. He is the one who overcame and could take the scroll of the book in which the judgments are unleashed, ultimately ending in the new heavens and the new earth. But now it's transferred to the overcomer, to you, the Christian. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received from my Father. As I also have received from my Father. This is what Hebrews was talking about, essentially. It was the Father's plan for us to share in the inheritance and the rule of His Son. This authority of Christ is what he received from the Father in his role as Messiah. And so in this sense, it is a testimony of his deity and the reality of his incarnation. It is a reflection of his eternal relationship with the Father through whom he was, through whom all of creation came about and for whom all of creation was made. Do you get that? It's hard for us to fathom that. All of creation was made so that the Father would give it to the Son. Not for the Son by himself, but all of creation was made so that the Father would through the Son's incarnation, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, be made head over all of creation, reconcile all creation to himself, and then bring a people to share in all that he reconciled to himself and the Son. That's why Anything exists. And God will bring it about and we will share in this that he has received from the Father. We will share in it in terms of his judgment and we will share in terms of redemption and the glory that is yet to come. And he says, I received this from the Father. And it had to be the Son, really, who could bring this about because... As he already read in Hebrews and in many other places, it is through the Son that creation came into being. He has, for those who like fancy words, the ontological right. For those who want simpler words, 
the right by his divine nature to be the head and the rule over all of creation. And then he has it by necessity of his work as the Messiah, as the God-man. And in that sense, he receives everything from the Father as God the Son who accomplished redemption for the people given to him. Let me just mention to you a few ways that this is talked about by John. Just a couple of passages. But in John chapter 3, he says this. In John chapter 3, verse 35... Verse 34, he whom God has sent speaks the words of God for he gives the spirit without measure. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Who else could rule over all of creation but one who is the son? Who else could rule with the wisdom and the power and the might? Who else could receive the glory of that rule but the son? And so here it is, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. John 13. This is amazing. Just before he washes the disciples' feet, and this is instructive, he says this in verse 3. Actually, in verse 1, he says he knew he was departing. He had loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end, most likely there to the utmost, to the very end of his life, but to the fullest possible way. In verse 3, Jesus after John already noting that the devil had put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. At that point, he laid aside his garments, he washed their feet in anticipation of the greater laying aside of his glory and humbling by going to the cross. But all things had been given into his hand. Listen to his prayer to the Father in John 17. He says this, verse 10. All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And we, as his people, share as reflectors and participations in that glory, which is the fullness of the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom that is to come and the kingdom that is to come before that. He's received these from the Father. He received authority from the Father. He's received all things from the Father. And he says, you get to share in that authority by grace. What he has by right, we have by grace. That's the promise. That's the promise. Why shouldn't you invest and follow Jezebel and compromise with the world? Because the world is passing away. Why shouldn't you fear the threat of the kingdom and the earthly powers? Because they will be destroyed. And guess what? You will be a part of their destruction. Why in the world would you compromise with that? Why in the world would you give up Christ for that? Is his message. Hold firm to the end. It's worth it. It's worth it. So we'll rule with him. That is the promise. And it's not just here. He says it in many places. In Matthew 19, 28, there's a unique part of this to the disciples where he says, truly I say to you, you have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. You also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. To all disciples, who truly know him, he says this in 2 Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with him. 
Listen to this amazing statement in 1 Corinthians, you're familiar. Or do you not know, verse 2, chapter 6, verse 2, that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? What exactly that mean? Who knows? But there's the promise. In some way, we'll be a part of the judgment even of angels and of nations. Listen to Revelation 5.10. The worship is that you have made them be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, here's a question that we'll just mention here. When is this going to take place? Well, it's certainly going to take place in the future. That's the idea of hope, isn't it? It's what we look forward to. It's what sustains our heart. When is this going to take place? It's in the future, but we're in the future. Well, it's the future to them, future to us. It's still future because the church hasn't experienced this yet. Well, here's the big question. Is it the future of a millennial kingdom, of a reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years, or is it the future of the eternal state? What is he talking about here? Other even two? Well, that we'll get into. That's the question. Let's consider this. It is a rule that the believers will share with Christ that involves judgment. Judgment. Taking on from the promise to the disciples, it is a judgment that will be exercised during the reign, while the reign is being experienced. It is a promise that is pointing to the return of Christ. And interestingly... In Revelation 19, 14, there is the anticipation of believers being a part of this. In verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven, this is speaking of that glorious return of Christ, clothed in fine linen. He's already described those in fine linen, those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Those aren't angels. Those are believers, white and clean, who were following him on white horses. And they'll be a part of this judgment that's going to come. This judgment on all the rebellious that have raised up against Christ. The beast and the birds of the air will eat their flesh. Satan will be bound for a thousand years, he said in verse 4 of chapter 20. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them. Listen, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, the overcomer, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and they reigned for Christ for a thousand years. And they reigned for Christ with this given to them judgment. Judgment. That's what he says in verse 4. There is judgment that we were participating in. It's hard to see this as the eternal state. The 12 tribe disciples ruling over and judging the 12 tribes of Israel, but that's the promise here. But it doesn't end there. Listen to verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 5. Now this is the eternal state. Let's read it and I'll make one observation. And there will be no longer any night after he talks about the, the, the lamb and the father being in the midst of the throne and the water of life coming through and the tree of life on either side of the river. And then he says this, 
His bondservants will serve him in verse 3. They'll see his face in verse 4. And in verse 5, there will no longer be any night. They will not have the need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. And listen, they will reign forever and ever. That's us. That's Christians. They will reign forever and ever, those who are found finally to be in Christ, to participate in his life, to have been born Again, now what is the difference here? The observation, notice, there's no judging here in the eternal state. There's no judging. There's no one to judge. The nations, he says in chapter 21, are bringing their glory into the new Jerusalem. They're bringing their glory into the great city. They're not judged. So there is a reign that will begin with the return of Christ over the nations, it will involve an element of judgment, but there is a reign that is beyond that, that is anticipated, that is with him over the new heavens and the new earth, which is then finally the fullest expression of God's intent in Genesis 1, that man would have dominion over the earth. There it's realized in all of his fullness, dominion over the earth in perfect fellowship with God through the Son who is the head over all creation with delight and joy and glories that we can only imagine. And then he says this, to kind of cap it all off, and it forms the second part of the promise. We'll have, we'll share in this authority, we'll share in this judgment, we'll share in this reign. He says also in verse 28, I will give him the morning star. I will give him the morning star. What is that? Well, there's a variety of suggestions. I'm just going to say them quickly. Some say it is the messianic rule of Christ that comes from... The prophecy of Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. You can read it, verses 14 through 20. Some say it's a reference to the Roman use of Venus. The morning star is actually the planet Venus, and they used to hold that as an emblem of victory. And they say here it pictures the ultimate victory of Christ, who is really that morning star. Or it could be a reference to Christ himself, which includes his messianic rule and victory over the nation, but focuses primarily on the blessing of his presence. And I think that's exactly how he means it. As a matter of fact, he uses this one other time in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David. There it is. And the bright and morning star. I am that bright and morning star. I am the one. Interestingly, although a different term, but the same idea, same reference to the morning star Venus. In 2 Peter chapter 2.19, he says this, We have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention is to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. So what is the promise? I think it's this. The promise is that in that time when he returns, in that time when we experience these realities... We also experience in the fullest expression Christ himself and life in him. His reign, his fellowship, his kingdom. In short, the Christian's reward is Christ himself. That is the reward. He is the reward. God is the reward of our salvation. Ultimately, Christ is our reward. And so I would just end with asking this question. Does this sound thrilling to you? Does it sound thrilling to you? Does that move your heart? 
Does this reality bring a sense of hope and joy in your heart and an even greater desire for obedience and service in anticipation of being with him? Let me tell you, beloved, that's the difference between regenerate and unregenerate. How you hear that promise, how you hear it, how it affects you internally. It's what marks a believer and an unbeliever. And here's why it has to be a part of the overcomer. Because guess what? It's hard to follow Christ in this world. And it's going to get harder. And if there is not something internally that enables us to stand with courage against whatever will come our way, if there's not something that compels us to deal with our hearts and the flesh and to grow in holiness, to get stand back up when we get knocked down, it has to be the love of Christ and the anticipation of this. One day the struggle will be over. And I will be with Christ and the greatest longing of my heart will be realized which is to give him all of myself in worship and love and praise. And that's what he's saying must motivate the believer. And the believer is the one, again, we mentioned this, it's one of the best descriptions. Well, there's many. It's the one who beholds the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so there is a sense where the overcomer has to overcome because their heart has seen the glory of God in Christ. They have tasted of his grace. They have come to understand his truth. They have come to see things as they really are. And they look at the world and they know it's passing away. And they look at Christ and they know that he is coming and they hold on in hope. And it's him who sustains that hope. And that's the one in verse 29, who has ears to hear and hears what the Spirit says to the churches. What a glorious promise. And so if we want to grow in this battle, if we want to know, be courageous, then what we ask God for is this. Give me a sight of Christ. Help me to see more of his glory in his, your word. Help my heart to lay hold of the wonders and the profound glories of all of creation and redemption and what that means in terms of what you're bringing to the believer. That's what helps us to live for him and not get distracted by those things that so easily turn our affections away, especially if there's success or if there's suffering and everything in between. It is the sight of Christ that keeps us going. It is the promise of our future with him May he give us, enlighten our eyes to see that more and more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these promises of your word. And as Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, we, we ask that the Spirit, you Holy Spirit, would enlighten our eyes that we could know the greatness and the glory of your inheritance in the saints. That you would show it to us. We need to see it. Everybody who knows you, we need to see Christ. We need to see you, Christ. We need to lay hold of the profound glories of the promises that we have in you. We will reign with you. Help us not to be overly discouraged when we see a world given over in sin and under judgment get worse and worse and worse. Help us to hold fast to our hope and know that you hold fast to us. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the encouragement of your fellowship. Thank you for your faithfulness, which is the ground of ours. And thank you for the resurrection that gives testimony to the truth of it all.
and the certainty of it all. And we pray these things in him who rose for us, who died for us, who's returning for us. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen.